the curse of the devil. Exorcism, a sacrifice. Blessing or bestiality. The curse of the devil. Satan in control of the body and the mind. My love will destroy the creation. I swear that you'll find Welcome back to the Nashy Cast. I'm Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And tonight we have another new guest. Yes, 2020, besides being the... A Nashy <laughs> newbie for our show. Nashy Cast newbie. Nashy Cast newbie. Uh, this being uh, the year of the COVID hell, we are still persevering. We are moving forward and trying to get more and more new voices on the Nashy Cast. And so this time around, we have a uh, new voice, Sam Deegan. Hello. See, that's what she sounds like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you might mistake her... For Troy, yeah, but it's similar voices. It's very similar. There's a, I'll try to interject between the two of them so that there's some kind of uh, little little <laughs> different hook that everybody can hang that on and know that uh, they're listening to one person or the other. <laughs> Sam, you are one of the co-hosts of the podcast Daughters of Darkness, and also a regular writer. And I, are you a, are you one of the uh, big wigs at uh, Diabolic? Yes, I'm one of the editors of. Diabolic, and I also co-host a podcast called The Evil Eye that has sort of a ridiculous focus on goth movies, and we've been a little sort of curtailed by quarantine, but hopefully we will start recording again soon. And I also am a pretty regular guest host on The Projection Booth. Yes, yes, you are. <laughs> you and you and Cat Ellinger both are, and it's, it's always a it's always a, a joy to get to get you guys on there because there's a I, there, there's a, there's this weird left hand turn that you guys will tend to take on things that uh, so sadly those those of us who uh, are of the male variety just honestly don't ever see. It's great. Well, I'm glad to hear that because I usually feel like I yammer on and sometimes get too academic and i always encourage mike to to edit me down (laughs) (laughs) this it's uh i'm yeah yeah editing Uh, we talked earlier about editing i don't want to talk about it it's driving me crazy um when i asked you to come on here you you were quite enthusiastic and uh you seem to have some specific thoughts about spanish horror that uh you uh well, you just—we uh, interrupted you earlier. What 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 is it about Spanish horror that uh, appeals to you specifically? Well, so one of the things that we were talking about earlier is my preference for movies that sort of go off the beaten path and directors and sort of filmmaking teams that try something new and are kind of pursuing these creative experiments and they're they don't always make sense they're not always successful from a mainstream perspective but that is one of the things I'm most excited about in cinema and I think you find so much of that in Spanish cult films I mean even the more mainstream ones like Almodovar you you just you never know what to expect and just I'm always excited by that it's understandable, and there, yeah. there's a the unpredictability, the uh, the the willingness to uh, just fail miserably financially, 
because that's just you know you, you're pursuing whatever vision it is in your head. That's that's something to be lauded, but uh, boy, it does uh, it does take its it does take its deep cuts into careers. It really does, and I mean, you know, Cat and I have at this point done a few commentaries on uh, Jose Larraza's work, and I feel like he's a really good example of somebody who just kind of said fuck it. And, is it okay if I curse on the show? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, okay. no, no, don't ever say fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you fucking mean it. Yeah. Well, in this case, I fucking do. All right. Uh, okay. Well, he's somebody who, you know, couldn't make the films that he wanted. And I'm sure anyone who has listened to your podcast knows all about Franco era censorship and how people mm-hmm. sort of like Jess Franco, (laughs) not Jess Franco era censorship, but Francisco (laughs) Franco era (laughs) (laughs) had to be creative and go to other countries sometimes to make Mm -hmm. the films they wanted to. And I, I can't imagine that level of bravery of just sort of saying, well, what I really want is to do this adaptation of Carmia, except I want there to be a scene where she's buried in the sand naked with a scuba mask on. Yeah. And Spain's <laughs> like, you know what? Maybe you shouldn't do that. And he's like, I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, if there are two, uh, yeah, if you, if you want us to identify the, you know, the two like uh, ghosts that haunt Spanish cinema, especially the seventies, it's basically, Franco and Catholicism, you know, or like the two, yeah, it's like general, basically the two. General Franco, the, the dictator Franco and Catholicism. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it really is a little confusing when you get into a conversation about Spanish horror or Spanish cult cinema and you start talking about General Franco, but you're also talking about Jess Franco. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Well, he's a, he's a guiding light of another type. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like, could they be more different? <laughs> No, not at all, and that's that's the, one of the weirder areas when you're, you're when you're trying to find a way to ex- explain this using history as a guide. For instance, when you have to back up and explain to to people the the history of Spain, you know, starting to open up in the '60s, and you know, let, finally let you know letting tourism in, letting tourists in in the '60s, and how much that started to change uh, Spanish culture because it had been so repressed for you know for two and a half decades at that point, and just the, the culture clash with modern people in the 60s and early 70s coming into this place that was like stepping back into the into the freaking 1930s and all of the weirdness and how that really did create a different world from the rest of the European countries of the 20th century for film creation. Not Well, not just for film creation, but for just about any anything in the world. But, you know, definitely what we're talking about would be film creation where you get these weird, weird things. I mean, the most surface thing to talk about is usually... The thing to show people is, uh, you know, you talk about Paul Nashi having to craft two different ty- two different kinds of scenes, clothed and unclothed, for the you know, so that one version could be shown in Spain and one shown er- literally everywhere else on the planet Earth, and uh, how this creates essentially this bizarre world where the any film that wanted to be shown in Spain had to uh, kind of dance around nudity, but violence was okay, you know. And uh, not, uh, not not unlike the similarly prudish American world of censorship for so many years, but at the same time, making people understand how repressed the culture was and what that does to what you're seeing on screen, it just becomes this bizarre way of having to explain. Okay, look, you know what religion is, right? We got we got we got religion, right? Okay, now do you understand how weird Catholicism can get? Like a picture an ingrown toenail. 
Picture an, inf- <laughs> picture an infected ingrown toenail. And then picture gangrene setting in. Okay, now we've got Spain. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, I do I do sometimes wonder, so I myself am not religious, but I was raised in a Catholic family, and I sometimes wonder if some of my affinity for, like, horror in particular, and also erotica that grew out of Catholic traditions like Spanish and Italian, if there's just some sort of like unconscious connection there, because man, are they weird. And I think some of it you is, I imagine is harder to understand if you didn't grow up exposed to some of that weirdness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, n- neither Troy or I grew up Catholic. You know, we, we grew up in, uh, yeah, you know, I grew up in the Baptist tradition here in the South, which has its own problems. Trust me. And, uh, I, I also uh, gave up on religion a few decades back, uh, but the idea of watching it's it's this it's this bizarre thing where I was in my twenties and early thirties before I really had an inkling of just how different from my upbringing, say, Catholics were. Because then, by then I knew people who were practicing Catholics, and so got invited to uh, you know you know Catholic church a few times and saw a few you know saw a wedding or two there and then. It just became this very odd thing, realizing how ritualized things are, and how those rituals were very calming, and and how they 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 that structure helped people a lot to kind of feel as if they it, it's almost like meditation, I think. Yeah, I would agree with that, and it's it's very weird to me because I associate religion as being very ritualized and structured. I mean, I also. Mm-hmm grew up in a Jewish community and Judaism is also very ritualized. So mm-hmm. it's really weird for me. The, f- the few times that I've experienced either Protestant or Baptist events, I'm like, y'all are real casual. How was, <laughs> yeah. this, how was this religion? Also, it's very angry. <laughs> oh, the anger. Well, yeah. Maybe not Protestantism. Protestantism. It's like, they're not, they don't care. <laughs> Baptism is kind of angry, though. It, it it can get angry real quick, and it's also really strange. There there are these very man. There's some really well. Welcome to religious cast. Uh, no, uh, the idea. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> I don't know how this happened. <laughs> well, I mean, it it, 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 it does... tends to come up in Spanish uh, discussions, Spanish horror discussions, quite a bit. So. Yeah, because it circles back in. It circles back in because that's the thing is what you're when you start looking at those films from uh, the 60s and 70s from Spain. Underlying almost all of the all of it is this weird Catholicism. Whether it's meant to bleed into the stories or not, it does. Even if it's not, you know, front and center, it doesn't take much digging beneath the surface to kind of see where some of this starts to where it starts to gestate and then pop out in odd ways. Definitely. And one of the things that I find so interesting is how closely related, even though they don't want to admit it and are horrified if you ever bring it up, but how closely Catholicism is, and also some of the sort of older Orthodox Christianities like Eastern European, Greek Orthodox, things like that, how close they all are to paganism and how a lot of the sort of pagan holidays and rituals and symbols were adapted, yeah. partly partly as a way to encourage native populations to convert without much effort. But I think because you have 
that underlying foundation for things like Spanish horror and Italian horror, it's so easy to kind of twist those rituals and to make them either more supernatural or more grotesque. And it, I think just results in some of the most interesting horror films probably ever made, like like The Bell from Hell. Mm-hmm. Well, that's where we need to... Uh, Good segue. Exactly. The movie we're going to talk about uh, at length tonight is the classic, brilliant A Bell from Hell. But uh, before we go there, I warned you about this, Sam. I warned you about this days ago, so I hope you're prepared. You've come on the Nashi cast, and so I must ask you, what are your favorite Paul Nashi films? I tried to make a list, and honestly, I'm struggling, because I just, I really, really love him. I mean, just, first of all, the... Not only the the gall to say, all right, I'm going to be every single universal monster. <laughs> <laughs> I say that all the time and it never works. <laughs> I know. I mean, to say that, but to actually go through with it and dedicate your entire career to it. It's like he made every single type of horror movie you can make. I mean, I I know that some people who we don't have to acknowledge don't enjoy these films but i i mean i just i love everything like the darker stuff like horror rises from the tomb i love i love count dracula's great love i in fact when uh vinegar syndrome released it i wrote such an over-the-top enthusiastic review that they wound up hiring me to do work for them and i don't know that's awesome (laughs) that's great I don't know if it's because of that review, but they like they reached out to me and they were like, thank you for writing this. I was like, thank you for <laughs> releasing it. <laughs> like, it's so good. And people, I think that's also something that really frustrates me is I feel like people treat him like he's some sort of hack when it's like, all you do is sit on your damn couch, like do something yeah. creative yeah. and then yeah. you can make fun of Paul Nashi. But it's like he's made all these different monster movies. He's made Jalo movies. Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll is definitely one of my favorites as well. Yes. I mean, you have a super macho guy who makes a Jalo movie where he casts himself as the main inspector and then like puts on a <laughs> puts on a what the hell is it called? Like a kitchen, a flowery kitchen oh, yeah. <laughs> and cooks yeah. wife for right, his, right. Or cooks his lady. Like, come on. He does it all. He literally does it all. Oh yeah, and he's and he's sitting in a bathtub, nude, smoking a cigar, imparting information to his wife. I mean, it's weird. It's so good. But if I had to come up with like three or four favorites, definitely Horror Rises from the Tomb, definitely Werewolf versus Vampire Woman. I really love Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll. I like a lot of the sort of more satanic ones, like Inquisition, but. I also like just the weird tangents he went on with some of his werewolf movies. Like Werewolf and the Yeti is pretty amazing. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. So all of them yeah. is my answer. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's a fine. That's not a problem. That's a good answer. That is a good answer. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. That's that's that, fantastic. That's, that's understandable because there's a there's a lot to love there, and you're right. I mean, once you start digging into his movies. It becomes a, it, it's kind of an all-you-can-eat buffet of just whatever the hell weirdness was going through his head and for two decades. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, even after we've been doing this show now for over a decade, it, it still, I know, just makes our day. Anytime we come across somebody who 
expresses total unabashed love for Nashy. I mean, you know, we, we talked to a lot of people who are, you know, have a, are, are just kind of getting into him, who are beginning to appreciate it. Uh, maybe they appreciate certain things, not other parts of his films, and that's fine, but it's always great to just talk to somebody who obviously speaks, you know, with just pure pure Nashy worship is always a good thing. I thought you were about to say, speaks Nashy ease. Nashy ease, sure. speaks Nashy esque. <laughs> <Nashy. laughs> both, both of those things I do. <laughs> Well, yeah, of course. I mean, Horror Rises from the Tomb is one that uh, almost everyone cites. If you if you say give me you know give me five, then you know mm-hmm. Horror Rises from the Tomb is just yeah. such an amazing film, and the rush of adrenaline that that movie represents in so many different ways. There's so much creativity in that. It keeps it just keeps throwing so many things at you that you really have no idea what's happening next. I mean, that I think in a way describes a lot of them, where mm-hmm. you're just like like. Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll does sort of remind me of the bell from hell and the way it kind of sets up this guy who may or may not be a murderer is alone in a house with these fucking crazy women. Yep. And it it's like he does all these things that you wouldn't expect. Because when I hear people write off his films, they either say that they're poorly made or that they're all the same. And it's like, if you think they're all the same, that means that you read some IMDb plot descriptions and you didn't watch them, you lazy son of a bitch. Yeah. Because yeah. they're all pretty fucking different. I mean, even the werewolf movies are, are completely different. Uh, you know, yeah, some, I mean, yeah, and I think people who maybe see one or two of them spaced apart over certain years, then they come away with this sort of attitude of that they all follow the same formulaic thing. And then once you really start digging deep into them and watch them all, you realize how different they really all are. Well, I mean, it's, it, there's, a, there's a thing that Troy and I reference again and again, which is that when we started doing this podcast initially, the first year, one of the things that we repeated a few times before we got, before we got half a year into it, we, we realized we were wrong, which is that it, it had been our impression as kind of casual fans of Paul Nashi watching his movies over the years that essentially there were only two kinds of female characters in a Paul Nashi script. That was, you know, uh, you know, e- evil, evil vampire, or you know, evil woman to one degree. You know, the evil character like Helga Helga Lene plays in *Our Rise from the Tomb*, and then, you know, gorgeous screeching victim. And that's really the that was the extent of it. And then it doesn't take it doesn't take much examination of his movies to realize just how fucking wrong we were, mm-hmm. <laughs> because in in so many of his movies. It is the women who are much more interesting and much more nuanced and have much more going on than the hapless dipshit that often <laughs> Paul Nashie himself is playing in the story. Yeah, that is also, I'm glad you bring that up because that's one of the things that fascinates me so much about his films is he plays on the surface this sort of kind of vain like vain macho stereotype which you if you watch any of the films you realize that that's not actually who he is but mm-hmm. it's sort of like he's playing to this spanish stereotype but in literally every single one of his films at least the ones that i've seen i'm sure there are some exceptions that don't follow this but he always plays this character whose life is utterly dependent on whoever he's in love with. And like, he cannot function without (laughs) said love interest. And that's another thing that I love so much about Spanish horror. 
there's a degree of this in Italian horror as well, but especially in Spanish horror, this sort of like vein of melodrama that creeps in, which I think is really interesting and is not in as many more straightforward American horror movies. And I just love that there's, it's not just, okay, here's this superficial plot about some monsters. It's like, dude's heart is broken. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, Nashi is very good and got, he got better and better over the course of his career. He's very good at playing the character that is Valdemar Daninsky, who's this poor cursed son of a bitch. Who's just having to exist with all the weight of the world on his shoulders. And, he he was very, he was very good at conveying the the just downtrodden nature of this poor bastard who you know through often through no circum no circumstances that he could control is just fated to murder people and he can't stop himself. Which I feel bad. I don't really feel bad, but I sort of feel bad saying this. And if there are any like diehard Universal fans listening, they might hate me. But I feel like that addition of his where there's so much romance in these movies is kind of an upgrade from the universal werewolf movies where it's like, yeah, there's sort of a love interest, but mostly he's just this poor bastard who wants to commit suicide and no one will help mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like, yeah, good that, point. that sort of runs its course. Whereas here there's room for other characters. Mm-hmm. Well, he built it into the werewolf story through the mythology of the only way to really end the the werewolf's life is if he's murdered, literally murdered, by by someone who is in love with him. And by building that into the the Valdemar Daninsky werewolf legend, it makes it it makes it automatically tragic no matter which direction he takes the story because the only way he can be sure that he won't, you know, recycle again and pop up somewhere else and start murdering people, is that if some poor woman who actually loves him is willing to kill him. And yet it happens again and again in so many movies. And all of these women are... <laughs> because they all love him. Yeah, they all follow him. <laughs> and every one of those women are dead shots with a fucking pistol. They are. We always talk about it, what incredible marksmen they are, you know. It's like they apparently love makes your aim just like... <laughs> you know, just, just uh, you cannot miss if you're in love. Yeah, I'm, remi- I'm reminded of Jamie Lee Curtis at the end of Halloween Two, putting two between my, you know, right, right in the eye sockets of of Michael Myers. It's like, does this woman spend a lot of time on the gun range? Jesus Christ! <laughs> so, when did you? I, this and this may seem like an odd question, but I'm I, I'm leading you. Uh, be, be wary, be wary. Uh, <laughs> how old were you when you first saw one of uh, Paul Nashie's films? That's a good question. My guess is, I want to say around sixteen, maybe, because I started watching Italian horror when I was like thirteen, like probably younger than you should be. Yeah, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, and. I was desperate to find more and more European horror movies because that was just sort of immediately what I was attracted to. But they were so fucking hard to find, especially the Spanish horror movies. I know that pretty early on I saw Blood Spattered Bride and was like, well, this is the greatest shit I've ever seen. How can I find more of these? (laughs) And. I want to say not too long after that, I managed to find some really crappy bootleg of werewolf versus vampire woman. And I think like 
Night of the Werewolf or something. I mean, it also was really, I, I struggled with this for a while, which I'm sure you guys did too. When they were only available as bootlegs, they all had like 900 different titles. Oh, so yeah. you, you didn't know if you were buying the same movie twice mm-hmm. or if it was like, because they also had these like short little sentence plot descriptions. And it was like, I don't know which movie this is. Yeah. <laughs> Hell. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exa- exactly. Oh, the exactly. The ones for the ones for Nashi. Yeah. yeah, all the descriptions would be so similar. It'd be you know a a, cur- a, a cursed man becomes a werewolf <laughs> and and kills people. It's like yeah, no shit. I mean, <laughs> could you help me out with some detail? I mean, is this the one where he get where he fights a yeti at the end as a non sequitur? Yeah. Help me out. I mean, help me. Yeah, and a lot of I think a lot of the descriptions were written by people who hadn't really seen the movies. So it's mm. like, had I known there was a yeti in this film, I would have purchased it from you (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) because how could you how could you not yeah oh of course i mean you had me at yeti yeah you you had my what was it you you had my interest at werewolf you had my attention at yeti so yeah yeah i mean i don't joke when it comes to yeti movies like i do these monthly or at least before quarantine i did although i'm starting them back up again but I did these monthly kind of themed movie marathons, and last Christmas we did a Yeti Fest. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, oh, wait a minute. I, oh God, I'm warning everyone now. This is going to be a side road. Have you seen that bizarre Yeti film that's actually just about to get released on Blu-ray here in a month or so? I, Jeez, uh, now, now I'm going to struggle to remember the name of the damn thing, but it's... It's this this really it's a, it's like a, a giant yeti that they find. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh, I've seen it. <laughs> okay, I fell. I, I got. I I I, <clears throat> I illegally downloaded a copy of it about uh, two years ago. I do not. Uh, I don't suggest that anyone we do such a thing. Such I don't condone such activity. But it did allow me to see this movie, and I got to tell you, I fell in love with it. It's terrible, and I loved every second of it. And there are giant Yeti nipples for anyone (laughs) (laughs) who really needed something to sort of clinch the deal. (laughs) For for those of you on the fence about the weird giant Yeti movie, nipples. There are also weird giant Yeti nipples that you can, even though like the quality of the print isn't very good, like. Yeah, they're pretty detailed. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of attention paid to the Yeti nipples and the design of that monster. I don't know why. I really don't. Was, oh, this really is a tangent. <laughs> it was like Giger levels of detail work on on the freaking nipples. It's like, what? Well, we want to get this right. We want everybody yeah. to believe this. <laughs> there. It they're weird and puffy, and it almost kind of seems like the Yeti's about to start lactating. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what's the fascination with Yetis? I'm I'm curious. Um, I don't know. I guess I just I as a kid really liked monster movies and found them very comforting. And I saw Hammer's Abominable Snowman on TV, I think probably one Halloween. And I just, I like them because they're not as over the top and kind of repetitive as a lot of the like giant ape movies. Yeah. And they always involve somebody who's going on this quest where they just want to prove that the Yeti is real. And it's like, you don't, this isn't going to end well guy. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, yeah, it's a fair point. It's not going to end well. That's that's true. And so is not the Howling Beast part of your uh, Yeti Yeti Fest? Was it uh, or Werewolf in the Yeti? Werewolf in the Yeti. Or was that was that part of the Yeti Fest? We actually didn't watch that because I couldn't find a decent enough copy. Ah, well, there's a Blu-ray now, so. I know. Now I'm going to have to do, I'm actually thinking I'm going to have to do Yeti Fest again this year for Christmas because there are still more Yeti movies for us to watch and the Blu-ray can be part of it. Well, before we move off of the discussion of uh, Nashi, although I suspect we're going to cycle back to it because God knows side roads are us, but the uh, uh, Hunchback of the Morgue, what do you, what, what's your opinion of that one? Oh, I think it's great. It's insane. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, it well, is. It, it, it does uh, It does prove one of my favorite things about Paul Nashie, which is if he wrote the script and plays a, a character within the script, that character will have sex with every good-looking woman in the film. So, <laughs> I mean, like, wouldn't we all? <laughs> hey, <laughs> well, yeah, hey we're, not, yeah, we're not criticizing. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I feel like that and uh, the one satanic horror one, uh, what is it, El Caminante? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Those two are just so batshit crazy that when people complain to me about, oh, you know, I just, I can't really get into the gnashing movies. They're so slow. And I'm like, mm, are they though? <laughs> well, I mean, you were talking about Count Dracula's Great Love. That is one that it's, it, it's, it's easy to criticize that movie because it is disjointed and it does feel very much like a film of two halves. And part of that is because of the what they had to go through because of the car accident that you know that made them have to delay the production of the film. But the uh, the film is absolutely gorgeous. It's just such a beautiful, beautiful film. And of course, I bring that up not just because you love it, but because Hunchback was made by the same director. But uh, the, the the film is the, the film is a thing of beauty. And I remember when we first covered it, it I, we, I think we, we definitely both seen Count Dracula's Great Love, but when we covered it for the podcast several years back, it was one of those things where when you're really paying attention and making notes and going through the thing, you start to notice just how beautiful all the colors are and how carefully things are structured visually. And it's just, it's a gorgeous movie. It's, it, it's almost mesmerizing in certain sequences. And that is another thing that, I really think is different about Euro horror is so much of it has this attention to detail and maybe some of it is just that, you know, they have castles and we don't yeah. <laughs> and, and ruins and we don't, Yeah. but it's just like, if you compare back to back of a handful of totally random European horror movies versus American slasher movies, like, the European movies are just so gorgeous. Like you could take stills from them and be sort of blown away. Whereas it's like, do we need to look at another campsite again? Not that I don't like some of those movies, but I, I do think that's one thing that really elevates a lot of European horror and Spanish horror. But I will say part of the problem with seeing Count Dracula's great love on Blu-ray is those nightgowns. Yeah. <laughs> They look like they came from the thrift store. Like, they just, <laughs> they're so ridiculous. I love it, though. <laughs> oh, God. Now I've got to go back. That's never the thing that's on my mind when I'm watching that scene. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just, a, I'm just a typical guy, and I'm trying to see through them. So I'm sorry. I mean, 
it's the sort of thing where you're like, couldn't these be a little more see-through? And then maybe we wouldn't have to notice that they look, they sort of look like if you went to the Halloween store to buy Disney princess costumes, it's <laughs> like, that's what their nightgowns look like. It's like, come on, Jean Rollin at least gives us see-through nightgowns. Like, get it together. <laughs> well, you brought up something just a second ago there that's something that Troy and I have talked about for a lot of years, which I just kind of put in the terms of that uh, that, that old poem, the idea of the, the land without ruins, which is, you know, the contrast is stark. Here in the States, if you want to set a story in a castle, you better hope you've got a really good map painting to uh, serve as a backdrop <laughs> or, you know, got the money to, to build a, a good facade. But, in, 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 you know, in Europe, you could just walk around and beg somebody to use this falling down pile of rocks. <laughs> That's in their backyard. Hey, yeah. can we use that old ruins in your backyard there that we can? <laughs> and that just adds immeasurably to I mean, just the perceived, you know, beauty of whatever's being produced just by virtue of making it in Europe get you get you a an end there and some production value that you otherwise would get nowhere near here in the States. Oh, definitely. And that is also why I think there are probably so many more European Gothic horror films than there are American Gothic horror films. I mean, you, you certainly have some like one that sort of springs to mind is something like let's scare Jessica to death. Yes. But that's so great because it, it it has that same sense of atmosphere where it's mm-hmm. in this really isolated wooded area and it's in this beautiful old house. But it's like that's sort of as close as you can get. Yeah, and it's a very it's a very modern version of that same kind of aesthetic. You know, which is which is amazing how they pulled it off. It's it's such a such an amazing film, and it does feel very much like a movie that could only have been made at that time trying to make that kind of feeling come across in a story that takes place in the 20th century. It's, uh, it's, it's amazing, yeah. But I will say it doesn't have nearly as much chest hair as a Paul Nackley movie made at the same time. <laughs> well, I, I don't know that that would be possible. I don't know that it's a, that's well, a... I don't, I don't think you manage that, no. <laughs> you, would have to, you would have to have some sort of chest hair wig. <laughs> <laughs> Fake chest hair. You could you, you could be forgiven for mistaking Nashi as the Yeti the first time you watch the <laughs> watch the Night of the Howling Beast. This is well, yeah, or even his werewolf movies. It's like has he started transforming already? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's actually I don't know uh, if it's not something that we like triple underline during the the course of the show, but. There came a point about two years into the show when we, we finally realized, we were, we were slow on the uptake, we finally realized just how soon in his career that Paul Nashie was using hair pieces, uh, was using wigs. And it, it, became, it became this moment where we were watching uh, Assignment Terror and realized that this is, you know, this is like his second or third, you know, depending on how you look at it, second or third starring role, and he's already got a really receded hairline. And we started thinking about it and started looking at all the other films and realizing, oh shit, he was wearing a wig like by 1970. <laughs> it's like, oh, holy hell. Yeah, it's, I think that's also another, so to me, I like, I feel sort of two ways about all of these movies coming out on Blu-ray. On one hand, very excited, glad that people can finally see them and that they don't look like, you know, they were taped off of 
a VHS tape 19 times and then put through mm-hmm. somebody's mom's wash. Like yes, <laughs> a exactly. lot of those early bootlegs are just so dark. And so it's great that they don't look like that anymore, but because they are cleaned up and they're so pristine and we all now have these giant TVs, you really notice the, like the cracks. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yep. It definitely, in some movies, it sort of looks like they've, like, touched up the sides of his wig with, like, some shoe polish or something. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. I, it's kind of, the, with me, it's, uh, my, my, my dark secret is, uh, well, it's not a secret to anyone who knows me, is I'm a obsessive Godzilla fan. And uh, the uh, Godzilla movies, now that they've come out on Blu-ray, which is great, I'm so happy that they're on Blu-ray, but the problem with that is that you can now, more than ever, you know, see the wires that were used, you know, to make all the flying monsters, and they really... The Toho, the classic Toho craftsman really went, really tried hard to hide those, you know, uh, uh, meticulously when they really put the time and budget into it. Uh, and, and they really did a good job on a lot of those films of hiding them. And now you're really starting to see them more because of the Blu-ray uh, kind of exposing that. So, yeah. Well, there was a recent, they just released uh, recently, just in the past few months, they released the classic uh, War of the Worlds on, uh, on Blu-ray. And there was some uh, talk of possibly... Uh, Digitally going in and removing the wires from the uh, from the alien spacecraft, uh, just to, just so that you know that that illusion that was there you know early on when the film was first being shown in theaters in the fifties, so that it would be maintained. And you know there was a little back and forth there, and I I don't know that I don't know which way they went with it. I don't yeah. know if they decided to do something with that because it'd be very easy to do now. Yeah, but I would fall on the side of not doing that, just as I would yeah. not want them to do it with the Godzilla movies, even though I feel bad for those those great guys who, who did work so hard on those that they're, but at the same time, it's a testament to the amount of time and craftsmanship and hands-on work that went into that. And so True. I really would not want them to go back and remove those, those wires. I, I wouldn't be averse to having the option to watch it either way. Though. Well, that's, that's something to be said for that. Yeah. yeah. I can see that. Uh, yeah. I feel like that's blasphemy. <laughs> <laughs> the wires are in there. Yeah. Don't take the wires out. Mm. And I mean, I, I do it's like I get why people find it distracting, but I find it endearing. It's yeah, like yeah, these yeah. films aren't made to be perfect. Mm-hmm. At least I don't think they are. I'm sure there are people who disagree. But that's what I love so much about them is that because they don't have these giant budgets, they don't have all of the restrictions that come with being under a major studio or being a major kind of mainstream release. So there's more freedom and I would rather see the strings and mm-hmm. <laughs> or you know the weird wig lines <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and of all the amazing things right oh now, I, now I'm sorry just a moment ago because of the the conversation the way it drifted I was just thinking if I wonder if there are people who instead of having hair plugs on their scalp had them on their chest <laughs> oh god what okay. a so <laughs> I, I actually think that there might be because really? if you watch The Devil's Wedding Night, yeah, uh, I think it's Mark Damon who's in that. Mm. His chest hair is so fucking ridiculous. It's <laughs> got to be a wig. Like that can't be someone's <laughs> actual chest. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Wow. wow. I haven't you rewatched right. it. I, I, I watched that um, just, just, I guess, about two years ago was the last time I watched it, but... I didn't even I didn't even pay attention. I was I was just worried about the incest. So yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's another example of those sort of 
European horror movies where you're like, what is, how is this made? What is happening? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, a lot of this, let's, let's, let's talk about the weirdness that is involved in, well, first of all, I I am going to segue off into a bell from hell. I wanted to ask a question here. The, uh, there are a number of things that, to to start off with the with the the film, which is when did you first see a bell from hell, and under what circumstances? That one, I want to say I saw probably in my early twenties, and trying to remember who it was, but somebody definitely. I think I was talking to someone about Spanish horror, about things like Blood Spattered Bride and some Jess Franco. And they said, oh, it must have been maybe another film critic or something. But someone gave me just this sort of like burned copy with a, I think with a VHS rip on it. And it looked terrible. (laughs) But, But at the same time, it didn't because it's such a visually appealing film it's one of those movies where even if it was in spanish and didn't have subtitles or you know some sort of obstacle to normal viewing i almost don't even think that would matter because it just it's so like the first time you see it if especially if you haven't seen a lot of euro horror or you haven't seen a lot of the kind of like deeper cut spanish horror movies your head just explodes. Your eyes come right out of your head, like <laughs> like Renaud Varley's. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, yeah, I, I said uh, when we did our uh, our podcast on it, our Beyond Nashy, as we call it, podcast on it, uh, that my favorite scene in the whole movie that I think is just visually still one of my favorite sequences in any European horror movie uh where he plays the great prank on the poor visitor there and telling him the ghost story or, you know, about the, 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 that, that this woman's three daughters have died, you know, and that she leaves the door open and sets out extra place placings because she's convinced yeah. at some point that they're going to actually come home and knowing that the girls are actually about to really come home and, and the way that they emerge and come through in that fog singing and the look of horror on the guest's face as he thinks that these ghosts are actually showing up. The scene is, is funny but it's also just beautiful, too. Oh, yeah, it's a gorgeous scene. It also, I think, sets up this kind of dichotomy that happens in almost every scene of the film where he's playing a joke on something and you're, for the most part, in on the joke, and so you can see it happening as it unfolds. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there is... And I feel like this is so hard to do in films, and I think... There are certain slasher movies that try to do things like this and it falls really flat where it's like on one hand you have this joke or this prank that is pretty sadistic and pretty mean spirited mm-hmm. <laughs> as much of Belle from Hell is. Right. Yep. And so it's like even though you know it isn't real, at the same time, it's all very kind of gothic and creepy. It's like even though you know it's fake, like fake outside of being a movie fake Mm. you also get kind of sucked in like the the three girls singing and coming in from the fog you start to kind of wonder is he playing a joke or is this actually happening and that happens so often throughout the film i just don't even understand how they were able to achieve that 
Well, I mean, that scene when the when the that that is the scene that actually introduces those three characters. Right, because so, you haven't seen them before, so yeah, so yeah, yeah I know what you mean. You're kind of like you think you know, but you're not totally sure. Yeah. yeah, you're pretty sure he's just fucking with this idiot, but you can't be positive until the movie lets you in on what he's been doing. The beauty of that is there are so many. I, I'm tempted to call them practical jokes that he plays within the body of the film, but not all of them are really practical jokes. Some of them are just borderline cruel or the kind of thing that you would uh, you would look back on from your, say, your 40s and think, wow, man, I was really being a teenager there. You know, stuff that... Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's, you know, like when, he, when, he, uh, when the, uh, the older lady faints and he carries her into her house and then leaves, the, you know, pulls her panties off and leaves that note... That's a that's a that's a cruel teenager early twenties you know it's a college age person's kind of uh, idea of a of a, of a joke. Um, I mean, it also is so fucked up. The joke is basically like, "Sorry, I raped you," and then later, yeah. later, later, he's like, "I didn't though." And she's so confused, she's like, "Did you or did, what?" <laughs> And, and there's, but see, there's that part of me, and you know, not being a woman, I don't know. I have to ask women these questions, and I actually remember a couple of years ago asking this question: "Is like, wouldn't you know if you'd had sex?" I mean, just out of curiosity, wouldn't there be some some telltale something? I'm not gonna say sperm necessarily, but just some telltale. I mean, you know, if I woke up and had somehow had sex while I was asleep, I'm pretty sure there'd be something left behind that would tell me this. But you know, other than a note. <laughs> I mean, if you really want me to answer this question, I, I, I have to say yes. Like my assumption is you would know because you would be able to like, there would be some sort of sensation there. But I mean, if he used a lubed up condom and his dick was really small, maybe not. (laughs) I don't know. I feel like there's a small window of possibility here. Well, and that points to the question that, that underlies that, which is when the that when that woman talks to him about it and he says, Okay, I didn't you know, of course I didn't really rape you. I always read her reaction and that conversation between those two characters at that point as her kind of wanting to keep that option open because you can see very clearly that she's kind of wanting to initiate an actual sexual relationship with her with him and by kind of playing that line of kind of sitting on the fence about whatever happened or didn't happen, she's kind of keeping that option open until he says, well, no, I didn't really rape you. Of course not. And I, Oh yeah. Yeah, no, totally. And that, (laughs) that's one of the things that I think is really hard to explain about that scene is my interpretation of it has always been that she and this I think shows up in a lot of Spanish horror in different ways where you have this kind of repressed female character who's in this unhappy marriage and you know that relates back to the political situation in Spain and the fact that women were really controlled by the male members of their households like up until probably the late 70s, in a lot of cases, you couldn't get a divorce. You couldn't open your own bank account without your husband or your father co-signing. So it's like there's all kinds of stuff that I'm sure you guys know about like going on underneath that. But mm-hmm. there, there are definitely these character types where it's 
repressed woman in an unhappy marriage who does want to have a sex life and does want to have some sort of happy romantic affair, but is sort of too Catholic and too repressed to initiate anything. So the way that I interpret interpreted that scene the first time I saw it, and I still feel this way is she kind of seems happy about it when she reads the note. That's like, sorry, I had my way with you. Cause he doesn't, if you, if you haven't seen the film, a, we're going to ruin the whole thing. So, you know, pause this and go watch it. But his note is, is a little more diplomatically worded than sorry, I raped you, but yeah. she seems happy about it. And then later when he says, no, we never had sex. She seems disappointed. Yes. Because maybe the way she could have had sex and still had an excuse, you know, to not feel... To not feel guilt about it, yeah. Uh, yeah, and which I think that is a whole... So this this is one of the things that I find really frustrating in terms of introducing A Bell from Hell and mm. films like this to mm. younger, maybe more woke audiences is there's so much going on in these films. And I, I think people have this tendency to watch something like this and say, you know, this is horrible. There's all this rape. There's all this violence against women and they make rape jokes. And it's like, yeah, but there's more going on and it sort of helps to be familiar with this particular type of cinema and the political history and to just write it off and say that it's offensive is stupid and reductive and I find that offensive. Well, it's not just a modern audience either that might be put in a weird position because don't get me started on people who think that a movie made in 1980 is a is an old movie because mm. then we're just going to have a fucking drawdown <laughs> fucking fight because it drives me batshit insane. But don't they know that the dividing line is whether it's in black and white? I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> right. yeah. sorry, sorry, sorry. No, the... The, the thing about this movie that's going to key problems with someone who's not paying attention or who's just looking for something entertaining, quote-unquote, is that this movie's main character is a ball of contradictions because we have a guy who, the, the most wonderful thing that he does, the thing that almost paints him as, a, as an, heroic, an, an heroic character, is that he saves this poor little girl from what would essentially be a gang rape. By, like, all of the most prominent old dudes in the village. And Mm -hmm. I think that's something, and this is going to sound terrible, but it's just going to come out of my mouth, that that's something that I love about a lot of these Italian and particularly Spanish films is everyone's (laughs) fucking terrible. Just all the characters do awful, shitty things to each other. And, like... I feel like you see this a lot more in Italian horror, but like even the kids are terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. No one's spared. <laughs> it's it's true, and that, that that's the thing is, like I say, if this is a film that you and believe me, I understand. If you have someone who you'd like to introduce this film to, you really do have to kind of gauge your audience because, like I say, he is the main character, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's a hero. I think in a lot of ways he is a tragic hero, but Definitely. he does horrible things in the movie. He does things that are that are kind of reprehensible, but at the same time, you're still on his side because it, the, 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 the horrible thing that he intends to do, and remember people, we warned you about the fucking spoilers, so here they come, right. is 
He has every intention in the world. He very carefully plans and nearly completes the murder of four members of his own family. And you're honestly kind of sad that he doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Well, he can't, what. Yeah, and it's fascinating that that is one of the fascinating things about his character is is that he himself can't go as far as he wants to, you know, as, as yeah. he thinks he thinks he can, but he, when it comes right down to it, he's not the most horrible person in the film, you know, and, yeah, and, and maybe not, to his own disappointment. You know? yeah, pro- yeah, you're right, probably to his own disappointment. He is, uh, he is an actual decent person. He can't bring himself to do the thing that will give him the only thing in the in, in life that he wants. And you, when you watch the movie, it's especially especially clear on rewatch, which is that he tries so hard to give his aunt every opportunity to just literally just give him the one thing he wants. He doesn't want the money. He doesn't want the house. He doesn't want anything to do with it. All he wants is his passport and his freedom, and he will be out of her life. And he, he, he does everything but beg her. And it still won't happen. And it's that it's at that point where, all right, we now enter the phase where I've said I've already said everything out. I'm ready to do it. Let's wheel this old bitch out and have her buzz to death. (laughs) It that's I think another one of the things that I love so much about this film, and I think it shows up more in Spanish horror than anywhere else, which is this sort of character type of the controlling just totally sadistic maternal figure, whether it's an aunt or a caretaker or somebody sort of claiming to be an older friend. Mm-hmm. LaRaz has this in so many of his films like Whirlpool and Deviation and things like that. There's always some older woman pulling the strings and doing things that may seem to have a logical reason, but really they're doing them because like they're just horrible. And I, I think that's something that I love so much about Spanish horror is as you guys were saying earlier, it's really easy to write off these films and think, you know, Oh, women are only these sort of femme fatale monsters or these kind of hysterical victims. But I think there's so much more of a range and what bell from hell does, I think really well is it shows you. And, and I think this is also true of blue eyes of the broken doll, which we were talking about earlier is it shows you the often very complicated ways in which women in a household interact with each other mm-hmm. yeah. and the way yeah. that those power games really kind of change those relationships a lot. The complicated, well, years ago, there was the, I, I remember sitting down and thinking about this in relation to a particular Italian horror film, which would be uh, Del Morte Del Amore, which is uh, the most perfect film, at least at the time, when I was thinking about this, about delineating the kind of three major ways in which a man views women. The standard, and it was a, it's a standard Italian way of men looking at women, which is mother, saint, you know, the, the, the mother figure... Sort of mother virgin whore thing. Yeah. Exactly. Those are those are your three options. Those are your three stereotypes, and almost everything that you can see is shot through a variation on those three visions of what a woman can or should be, and so it becomes this bizarre problem that 
it, it, it's that it's the trying to hold two separate thoughts in your head at the same time that war against each other. It's the the cognitive dissonance of attempting to uh, to be in love with this woman that you have this incredible lust for, and at the same time, her being the mother of your children, and therefore she's this saintly creature that you know is maternal and 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 giving and loving and all of these things that you associate with your mother. And it's this bizarre tug and pull within the male psyche that causes so many problems. And having it, having those kind of things be repressed, especially uh, in, uh, underneath a, a dictatorship and a Catholic dictatorship at that, only makes things even worse. I mean, there are all these jokes that I, I well, at least I tend to make about giallos, which is, ha, ah, let's watch this giallo. Will it be the priest or a woman? You know, it's <laughs> it, you know, and it's always one or the other. That's I mean, not in every case, but I mean, you know, your 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 odds are a good eighty yeah. percent that a, it's going to be. Or the priest dressed as a woman, you know? <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> which they already kind of are to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you went there. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, one of the things about Bell from Hell that I love, and you, Sam, you were talking about how how well. It plays out these pranks that uh, John does through the through the film and sets you up to kind of be a part, but also not totally sure what's going to happen. And one of the other things I think it pulls off so well and so with so many layers is this whole theme of just distorted and twisted sexuality through this whole that everybody has, you know, their relationships to each other. The scene, uh, one of the, I think to me one of the most disturbing scenes in the film, in, in the scene where the guys are, the older guys are, are are gearing up to gang rape the little girl, and there's the one one of them who's kind of trying to be the decent guy through most of the scene, you know, and he's trying to yeah keep the, talk the others out of doing it and keeps acting like he's gonna be kind of the little girl's salvation, and then suddenly he flips that switch, and and you know he just suddenly turns into the guy who looks like he's gonna instigate the whole thing or start the whole thing and. And to me, that, I just always found that a really chilling scene, but very real the way it plays out, you know, is that way that the, the person who's, who's how thin that shred of decency there is, you know, that veil of decency. And then John, who's the person who you think is the most sinister character, is the one who comes in and really does the decent thing. Doing his best to, to, to win, mm -hmm. you know, to mm -hmm. also smooth, smooth, smooth over any worries that the father might have as well, or the grandfather, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is very, I mean, his pranks aside, it, it does have these really realistic moments, especially in the way that it sort of depicts cruelty, mm -hmm. whether that cruelty leads to actual physical or sexual violence. There are just so many nasty characters in this movie. And I do think that's what makes it so different from Jalo films and especially from American horror movies is I think. American horror movies tend to have this very kind of black and white morality about them. It's sort of, mm -hmm. here are these characters who are minding their own business, and now here's this fucking maniac trying to kill them all. Whereas in most Spanish horror movies, nobody knows how to mind their own business, not even a little bit, and they get, <laughs> right. they get all up in each other's shit. and. Yeah. <laughs> intentionally cause each other pain or drama. And it's like, of course this is going to be driven to violence. Like, look at how you're treating each other. <laughs> well, it reminds me a little bit of uh, the, the, the thing that you see within uh, Candle for the Devil, which is the, you know, that push and pull between the, uh, the, the, small, the small town out in the sticks that now has to deal with modern people and the 
repressed people who live in that small town. It, it, it's the kind of shit that I grew up in small towns in the South. It's the it's that uh, everybody wants to be in your shit because everybody kind of knows you know what's going on already because it is a small town. So nobody's going to really leave it alone because to be honest, it's one of the few damn pieces of entertainment that they have. So why not you know poke the fucking anthill and see what happens? <laughs> Which to me is horrifying. <laughs> oh, I I completely agree. It's it's. It's one of those horrible things of human nature, which is that if you see yourself as completely safe, you are willing to do something horrible just to see what happens. Which is definitely one of the really interesting things about this movie, because like like we were talking about earlier, all of this is set in motion because the ant is such a fucking bitch. And it's like if she yeah. would, yeah, oh yeah, she would just give him his passport and say, "You're out on your ass, kid. I'm keeping mm-hmm. your money." Mm-hmm. She could have prevented all of it. Yeah, he's so crazy. <laughs> well, one of the things about this movie that I think, if if there's ever, please God, let there be a Blu-ray release of this yes. one day. If there's ever a release of that, one of the things that I want somebody to do a visual fucking essay on. Are the are the, the the representations and the, the the juxtapositions of bells and people, and the not, and I'm not just talking about the three the three women being you know strung up nude by their wrists. I'm talking about how the bell really the bell or bells really is uh, uh, it's it's a it's a symbol for a, so many different things within the structure of the movie. And my the, well, I mean, on the print that you you've seen, the print that we have here that uh, is from the Pathfinder DVD, the, the the name of the movie was The Bells, which appears to have been the title that it got released here in the states under, I think. Uh, yeah, I think so. So I, I think that uh, that might even be a better a better title if you want to go in the artistic horror direction. The Bells might be a better title for the movie overall because it concentrates the mind on. Not just that one particular bell that's being installed as the as the movie goes on, but the idea of well, bells are we talking about? Are we talking about the women in the movie? Because that's definitely that can definitely be a reference to uh, the women in the movie as they're strung up, just like the bell is strung up. But also, what it what what are the you know what are the what do the bells represent? And it's you know it's a direct call between that that family and all the fucked up interconnected relationships within it and the Catholic Church and all the fucked up interconnected relationships within the Catholic Church and just how they mirror each other in very strange ways and it's it's a it, the movie never you know really teases out teases teases it out and kind of rubs your nose in the idea but it's still there all the time because the movie cuts back again we we follow the progress of the installation of this bell for the first, I mean, what, half of the movie. And so it's impossible to not think about it as uh, meaning a little bit more than just uh, it being an interesting visual and, of course, being the, uh, the final resting place of John. But remember, we told you about the spoilers, folks. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I know it mostly under the Bell from Hell title, but... It's a pretty stupid title because it makes you think that this is like one of the many European exorcist ripoffs or something. I like, suspect that was intentional, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hell doesn't really 
enter into it other than, I mean, maybe it wasn't such a tangent for us to talk about Catholicism earlier because that main bell in the church is something that they keep coming back to. And definitely, as you were saying, it's such an important symbol that definitely does have all of these religious connotations. And have, have either of you ever read or heard of the play called The Bells? I think I've heard of it, but it doesn't. I'm, I hate to say it; it's it, it's not ringing a bell in my head right now. Sorry, sorry. I mean, it's it's not it's not something I would assume most people would would know. I just like one of my sort of backgrounds is nineteenth century literature, mm. and it's a really influential uh, play from the the late eighteen hundreds that is sort of a parallel to Edgar Allan Poe. Like it's, it's basically about this innkeeper who murders someone for financial gain, but is then tormented by what he's done. And he keeps hearing the sound of, of bells. And there's this sort of religious connection because I, I want to say that he's Catholic or Christian and, the person, the sort of wealthy guest that he kills is Jewish. So there's all this sort of like political subtext as well, but it, it has to do, it, it's really a lot like the telltale heart, but whenever I think of the title, the bells, that's what I think of. And there are some interest, totally, I'm sure unintentional, interesting parallels between the two in the way they deal with this idea of, you know, isn't it my duty to kill someone? Because in the bells, like some of it is greed, but he also convinces himself that it's a good idea because he'll be more comfortable and he'll be able to support his family. And, you know, the the Jewish character is obviously this kind of social parasite. And why does he need all this money anyway? And blah, blah, blah. But I think... It just sort of, in my mind, I feel like there are not a lot of movies that put you inside the character's head and help you sort of follow through this rationalization for why someone should kill someone else. But here it's done so effectively that like, even though there's all this gore and sexual violence and all these jokes, it feels like such a psychological film. I, yeah, I, it's, it seems pretty clear. Hmm. No, I'm, I'm, wow. fascinated, that's, I'm fascinated. Yeah, that's great. I, thanks for telling us about that play. I've never heard of that play, but it's uh, that's that's amazing uh, that it. But you know, my, that made you think of draw the connections between that and the film. It's pretty cool. Well, I, I'm now oh, curious, having ha, having had you describe it, yeah, it does sound a lot like the the Telltale Heart, but it does seem as if there's uh, you know a lot more kind of undergirding the the motivations of the killer. That's interesting. Well, and it's it's one of those plays that I think had some connection to the kind of Grand Guignol type theater that was happening in England. Things like uh, they're called the, the Penny Bloods and Penny Gaffs, where you know you either buy this little comic book or you go see a production and there's this sort of flimsy melodramatic plot about why someone is driven to do these horrible deeds like rape or murder someone, but pretty much everyone is there to see the the spectacle. Yeah. And that's one of the things I love about Bell from Hell, which we've been talking about is there is all this psychological stuff and you do really sympathize with John, but at the same time, 
they do such a good job of balancing it between plot and spectacle that it just like, even if for some reason you don't connect with it, with Spanish horror and you don't really care about the complicated plot, it's like you have to still love the visuals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this film, man, it, it has so much... Well, in re-watching it, to, to sit down, and I wanted to refresh my memory, so I sat down and watched the film again for the first time in about, well, at least a year. And it's so bizarre. The film seems to move so quickly on a rewatch. It's bizarre yeah. to me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, I'd not remembered... I've not remembered how quickly the the plot progresses, and uh, it, it's. I know the first time I saw it, and I, the first time I saw it was, of course, sometime in the 1990s on a bootleg tape that uh, mm-hmm. that was, you know, pretty good represent, representation of the film. But it's still one of those things where you're while you're while you're watching it, and kind of being blown away by what's what's you know the story being told and how it's being done. You also know that, man, they're, they're, I, I one day hope to see this without you know this extra layer of fuzz over the whole image. But the joys of being able to see this story play out the way it does the first time, the very first time you see it, is you really don't know where it's going. And then when it reaches, it, when you reach the end, and then you, well, you reach what you think might be the end, and then it goes on for another 10 minutes, and it really has a sting in the tail. Yes, it's so good. And, you know, I, I know a lot of people love deep red and there's that really creepy sequence with the puppet, but this just makes that look like child's play. Mm-hmm. This is, this is brilliant. And that's the thing is rewatching this movie. Every time I've rewatched it, I don't, re- I don't remember this may be the first time rewatching and I realized how quickly paced it feels almost as if it could have been even a little bit, if the, it, it could have, uh, it could have breathed a little bit more if they really wanted to let it be that way. Uh, so in, in other words, being more art house than thriller, a little bit and it could have been even it could have been they could have slowed the pacing down a little bit i don't know if i would have felt that way on a first viewing but on repeated viewing i do feel that way but at the same time the the speed with which we get to let's just call them key plot points that you remember you, you, you because you're never going to forget them once you've seen the film once you're there it's it's what's what you're forgetting are the details like forget i had forgotten for instance how carefully he prepared the house because they hide from you until the ending of the movie, the very ending of the movie. They hide from you just how well he prepared. But you see so much detail of him, like putting pieces of tape on, mm-hmm. you know, on, yeah. fur- on, the, on the backs of pieces of furniture and putting uh, rope underneath uh, uh, chairs and couches. And in other words, prepping the scene so that he can do what he feels he's going to need to do and leaving all these options for himself in different rooms to be able to capture the people that he's going to capture. But the joys of having those details filled in again as you rewatch the movie when the memory of the movie has faded a little bit, it just makes you realize how good the movie is because I can remember the broad outlines of the plot. I can remember how impressive I, how impressive the climax of it is. But everything along the way, every step along the way, all the details are just as good. Yeah, and that's something that I... So I, I watched it again today, just to refresh, because it's probably been two or three years since I've seen it. And I never get tired of watching it, which I today I was thinking a lot about how I typically really hate movies with twist endings. Like... Mm-hmm few things make 
flame shoot out of my nostrils. Like, like <laughs> as, as, much, as much as things like, like the usual suspects where, you know, you're following the movie and then once you reach the end of the movie, it tells you, oh, here's how this twist was set up and here are all the things you didn't see throughout the film. And it's like, how many times can you watch something like that? It's like the whole plot is a gimmick, basically. To but degree, yeah, to me, yeah. And I know there are people who like those kinds of movies and more power to them. But I just, I feel like I'm sort of a compulsive rewatcher. And I feel like if you can't watch a movie 10 times, like what's the point of watching it at all? <laughs> but, <laughs> which I realize is not how most people, most healthy <laughs> functioning people operate. But with this, I feel like it's the opposite of that, where exactly like you were saying, the movie doesn't really, it, it doesn't like dump into your lap everything he's doing. And there is a sort of mystery that unfolds, but you do see all of those great little scenes of him setting something up. So at the end, you don't feel like you're being tricked. Like it's not some sort of elaborate Sherlock Holmes type thing where, and I do love Sherlock Holmes, but sort of at the end of a lot of those, you have this sort of narrator or character who kind of comes in and says, I'm much smarter than you. And so I noticed all of these things you didn't. And ha, this is, this is why this mystery happened. But Bell from Hell, it's so just unusual the way that it lets you know that he's up to something, that he's pulling all these pranks and that he definitely wants to murder some people but it still manages to be this kind of compelling surprise where even when you rewatch it, you're like, wait, what's about to happen? (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, tell me something. Um, One of the elements of this movie that I I think is genius and it can be used effectively and some movies use it well and some movies sometimes miss the mark, which is the use of a generally, uh, generally considered a childhood song as a story point or as a, a way to uh, reference uh, a sense of the past impinging on the present. And of course, in this film, it's Frere Jaca. Uh, and you, you mentioned before, Blue Eyes the Broken Doll does something very similar. Uh, and I think it just, I think Frere Jaca, well, uh, how, do you, how do you feel it works within the body of the film? Um, honestly, it kind of makes me want to kill myself. (laughs) I I love, I love this film and I will continue to watch it again throughout the rest of my life. But if there was one thing, so if, if I had to pick, like if there were things that I could have done differently or that I could have them do differently, mm-hmm. I definitely agree with you that I think it could be longer or there could be some more kind of pensive sequences just because I like slower art house films. I also wish that he had won in the end. That would make, that would make me very happy. Yes. yes, uh, yes. But, but really, if I could change anything, it's like, can we not have the song so many times? If you made a drinking game every, <laughs> out of every time the song showed up, you would die of alcohol poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> do you feel the same way about its use in Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll, or do you think it's more more effective in that? I think I, it's just more noticeable here. Mm. I, I don't know if maybe it happens more times here. I mean, I also... Like it annoyed me the first time I watched the movie and it annoys me like a little bit when I see it now, but I just love 
Renaud Burley so much that I can put up with some shit just to <laughs> a little he watch is, him. Yeah, he is so good in this he really movie. Is, yeah. He really is a phenomenal actor in this movie. He's incredible. Yeah, he is somebody who, much like Paul Nashi, has a lot of hair. And his his <laughs> I had no I, I had no idea how much our conversation was going to revolve around hair. I had no clue. Me either. Sorry, hair and Catholicism <laughs> and Yetis. <laughs> hey, well, then the, the hair thing kind of keys into the Yetis right there. That's that's, right. that's pretty obvious, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's that's. That, that's a book to get published in some small press or McFarland, you know, hair, Catholicism, and Yetis. You know, that's her title. <laughs> Why Frere Jacques should never be used in ex, an exhaustive filmography. <laughs> I, now I have to do it. Uh, you, you must. Write that down. Jot that down. Ideas. Ideas for books. There's, a, there's an idea you can, you can have for free because it's worth every penny you just paid for it. <laughs> oh, my Lord. <clears throat> okay, so... <laughs> The, uh, the the psychological war that's kind of going on in this film, I find, is the reason the film exists. And whether or not there were uh, different ideas that were being played with before, before they got to the editing bay and put this film together, I do wonder uh, if there was more that might have been brought out um, before they sat down. Of course, people, people we, should, we should let you know that the director died just as they finished making this movie, so he's not the person who assembled the movie. He's not the person who is uh, responsible for the final edit of the movie. So I do wonder, there are lots of questions that I have about what it, what this film might be like if it had been uh, assembled by its own director. But the animals, the use of animals throughout the film, it would be something to, first, There's it would be something to warn people about, which is uh, the, the slaughterhouse sequences where our main character is learning how to uh, to to uh, render uh, render beef. I'll just put it that way, and uh, you know a lot of actual animal deaths on screen as cows are slaughtered. But also the use of animals throughout the movie. One of the one of the areas I thought they could have uh, spent a little bit more time on, and it wouldn't have hurt my feelings at all, is uh, showing us John. Uh, setting up his own little personal zoo there in the house once he comes home because we just suddenly get them, you know, all the birds and the turtles and the monkey and everything else. And it, and it plays into uh, a question that I've always had about him as a character because since he can't actually go through with the murder when he's got everything set in place to take care of it, he's, he even knows where he's going to bury the bodies, he's taking care of all, of, all of the possibilities uh, that he can think of, and yet he loves these animals. He loves them so much he's sharing his house with them. And to, to the point where his 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 aunt and his cousins are a little put off by the whole menagerie flying around at times. And it just seems such an odd thing when the movie clearly wants to paint him as an animal lover, but the movie has it front loads the the, the animal the actual animal slaughter. Uh, at the beginning of the movie, and it's one of those things, like I say, you'd have to warn a modern audience coming to it is like, okay, you're going to see some cows' throats cut, so you need to know this. This makes me crazy. So, mm -hmm. I, and not not anything you said makes me crazy, but the fact that you have to warn people, mm -hmm. because, like, I am a vegetarian. Mm -hmm. I do not eat meat. Mm -hmm. It seems like 90% of the time when I hear hear people sort of shocked about animal violence in a movie, it's like, 
do you know where your food comes from? <laughs> like, yes, I, it just it seems just sort of ridiculously hypocritical to me to be upset about, especially in this movie is within the context of a slaughterhouse. It's it's not like, you know, cannibal Holocaust where a turtle is killed for no reason just other than just to be cruel. But here it's like that those cows weren't just killed for the purposes of making this film. It's someone's going to eat them. And so I, I think to me, this, this sort of ties back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of the episode with this weird divide that so many different countries have in terms of depicting sex and violence on screen. It's like, you know, it's okay if we show a person decapitated and disemboweled, but God forbid you see some nipples, like what's going to happen. And I feel the same way about animal violence in movies. Like it it doesn't, you can't really find it after probably the mid eighties, but it's one of those things that just makes me so insane because it feels like such hysterical hand wringing. Like it happened 30, 40 years ago you can't do anything to change it. And it's a major factor in modern life. Like millions of animals are slaughtered every day. Like you, you can't freak out because you see a scene in a, a movie. Like also, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to rant at you. This just makes me no, crazy. No, I, I completely understand. And I completely sympathize because I, unlike you, I, I do eat uh, bacon as much as possible. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm actually, uh, I, I eat nothing but meat. Uh, <laughs> uh, I feel that vegetables were put here to feed the meat, and that's really why. <laughs> but do you, do you know what I mean? Absolutely, like, yeah. I, just, I, sort of, yeah. I feel like people just search for reasons to be offended. And well, that's this for sure, is, yeah. Another thing that falls, like, I get being offended by sexual violence and having it make you uncomfortable. I, like, I think exploitation films are for a certain type of audience. They're not for everyone. And, and that, like, okay, fine. But the whole thing about, like, well, this movie shouldn't be shown because there's violence against animals. It's like, okay, I'm going to follow you into Burger King. And then I'm gonna choke you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Rod and I have talked before about the difference in in what you said. You know, scenes, cruelty to animals in films that is is not part of everyday life and is not something that naturally goes on just for the sake of cruelty. And then versus something that is filmed that does happen every day that they just happen to film. And also, I think it's also more. I can take it more too, especially in films where it also has a point in the plot. Whereas I feel, and I feel this does in this film. I think thematically, and in Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll, the same case, uh, the scenes of an animal being slaughtered are not only something that happens the way it happened thousands of times every day, but also that it it actually has a point within the themes of the film. Yeah. Oh, totally. And I think especially with the sort of more recent kind of hand wringing about how, Oh, I don't want to see these sort of slaughterhouse scenes in movies. I think some of that is a class thing where it's, you know, chances are if you're middle class and you live in a city, you'll never go anywhere near a slaughterhouse Mm -hmm. or even probably a farm that is like an active farm with, with game animals or just sort of animals being produced for food. Mm -hmm. And it's like, don't be squeamish. 
<laughs> like don't be so privileged that you're like oh here's this horrible thing I don't want to look at it like you're watching a horror movie calm down <laughs> get, get, a, get a grip twi- twilight here <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly but no here I, I do think it's so important because he's trying to condition himself yeah. while I, I love the animal themes throughout so much I, I also think a lot of his family's weirdness towards his kind of home zoo is it's this area outside their control. It just the, to me, one of the big struggles throughout the movie that I love so much is it seems like there's this whole thing going on where his, his family, particularly led by his aunt, they're so desperate to control every aspect of his life that like we were saying earlier, all of this could be avoided if they just let him be free, even if they got to keep his money. But it's like, they don't want him to have any part of his life that is his own. Yeah. And it's, it's really creepy when, (laughs) when you, when you think about it. Well, I, that's kind of where I wanted to go next, which is the, the, the thing that is kind of a, a possible way to read that desire to control him as the only man in their family, which is, if you, if you stop and think about that for a second, that is a little odd that all three of those, those attractive women are not yet married off. That's a little odd. But I think the reason for that is that that places him as the only man in their life right then. Yeah, and there's... There's this very weird, and I think you have to probably watch the film a couple of times to pick up on this, but there's this very sort of weird tension between when he comes home, they have all this dialogue where they sort of accuse him. It's like, don't rape your cousin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> the, yeah, right. The way that the aunt says it is like, don't take your brother's toys. It's, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> well, so, it's so casual. But, <laughs> Well, the, the reason I bring it up is that within this this repressed and repressive society that this movie reflects and hell grows completely out of, as you were talking about earlier, one of the things that you'll know is that, of course, it's women's work to raise the kids, okay? So it doesn't take many generations for women in those circumstances and in those societies to realize exactly what power they have and learn how to wield it like a knife. And so what you have here is the the matriarch of this family, because the men have died. He's the only man, and he is younger, and therefore in her control. Well, why does she not want to give up her power? Because everything in that society tells her that is the wrong thing to do. If you let the man have the power, you'll never get it back. And as a matter of fact, the way in which you won't get it back is almost always reflected in power and violence. And so I think that that's, like I say, it's, it's, not, it's definitely there. They're not you know, coming in and, and, and tugging that theme out. But that is one of the reasons I think it's very clear why the matriarch of this family will not give him the one thing he wants, even though she'll get everything else, everything, is that keeping him under her thumb is at this point almost a reflexive action. Something that even if she gave it a lot of thought, she still might not do. 
Yeah, I mean, I also think that that's one of the things that makes not only her, but those sorts of characters that I was talking about earlier that show up so much throughout Spanish horror, that makes them, I think, sometimes more interesting than kind of stereotypical male villains is you feel sorry for them on some level. Or I, I think especially if the films are well made and the scripts are competent, you understand that probably something in their life happened to make them be that way. And I don't think that's always the case with these sort of controlling male villains in horror movies. You, you don't feel sorry for them as often or they're not painted as sympathetic as often. Well, I think, yeah, I think it's harder yeah. to paint men as sympathetic in general simply because men are, men are uh, it's much easier to paint men as, uh, I hate to say it, the, the villain is always more interesting and the man is always more seen as more physically powerful and therefore it's easier to paint him as a, uh, as a wild card. It's the same reason why no matter how hard I hope, I don't think we're ever going to have the equivalent of a female James Bond and that kind of sucks. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I think part of the problem there is all about the perception. And this is sort of a tangent, but I, I do think it kind of, it, it's the sort of same underlying principle with Spanish horror movies is you could have the same type of character. She would just be perceived very differently. I mean, you know, he basically goes out and has sex with everyone, which you can find plenty of examples of female spies or female detectives mm -hmm. who do things like that in literature and comic books, but they usually are written to be kind of like the way that Black Widow is written in Marvel comics. It's, you know, a sort of femme fatale, like you, I, I don't, I don't know that you can have a hero be like that, not because you can't write one, but because the audience would never perceive them that way. Yeah, it would be, um, and I'm about to get really obscure here, not in the first reference, but but hang on because there'll be a second one. Um, yeah. The the closest equivalent that I can think of would be something like Modesty Blaze. Yeah. Who, who works brilliantly in novels and in uh, comic strips, all the all that stuff. It was it was just wonderful stuff. But every time they've tried to translate it to the screen, it's always been neutered every fucking time, and it, it becomes this uh, very difficult high wire act of finding a way to put that kind of character on screen, even though there is a, there are a number of different types of series of these kind of characters. And one, one that I will point you toward, uh, you may regret that I did this at one point in time, There's a, there was a series, they only published, I think, eight or nine of them in the 70s, called The Baroness, which is essentially picture... Like not The Baroness from G.I. Joe. No, definitely, <laughs> definitely, definitely not. I know from comic books. <laughs> no, definitely not. This is a uh, a very near pornographic level uh, spy series. It strides right up to the edge, just as close as you can get on the printed page and still be published. With the female, with the the lead character being a woman who's very much the mover and shaker and the hero of the stories, and who engages in just about as much sex as you would imagine a James Bond-type character would engage in. And uh, the the idea of translating that to screen, putting that on screen, is it's, it's just, it, it wouldn't be done. It just couldn't be done because you're right. The general perception in any society, I hate to say, 
is that, you know, this woman is, imagine every hideous word, starting with the word slut and moving forward, would be applied to her constantly. And she would be doing exactly the same thing that a male character in the same kind of story would be doing. It's funny that you bring that up because I just a couple days ago changed my, and this is a stupid story, but changed my Facebook profile picture to this cover image from this Italian comic called Satanic, Mm -hmm. which is all about this kind of, she's an anti-hero. She's this scientist who manages to transform herself and she she does some pretty awful things and does have sex with a lot of people, but somehow is also able to do both science and magic at the same time. And she mostly kills people who deserve it, who are shown to be either criminals or they're terrible in some way. And there is a satanic movie that came out uh, sort of in the wake of the other things like criminal and diabolic but I think because it's a female protagonist, it's just nowhere near the same as the comic. I, I mean, I think the same thing is true of those Valentina comics and the Baba Yaga movie that came out. It's, it's like I, I like the movies, but they really hold back in comparison to the comics. And bringing the, weaving this tangent back in... <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you feel you must... <laughs> No, I, I do actually, because that's one of the things that I and Kat and I talk about this a lot on our podcast and in the different commentaries we've done. This is one of my favorite things about Spanish horror is, or maybe Spanish cult movies in general, is that probably more than any other European country or possibly more than any other country with the exception of maybe Japan, they really allow for a wide range of sexual female characters. I mean, if you look at not only sort of at Bell from Hell, but some of the Nashi films, especially the LaRoz films, you have all these older women who are very sexually aggressive. They show up in El Motivar's films. And you also have these younger women, which you definitely have with the sort of youngest cousin in A Bell from Hell, where they are sort of depicted as kind of innocent and virginal, but all they really want is to be able to have a healthy sexual relationship. And I think that shows up in something like Blood Spattered Bride, where she just wants to be happily married and wants to be able to have sex with someone who isn't going to try to choke her to death every night. Right, right. That's not so much to ask, in my opinion. (laughs) I know. It's like every other night is fine, but like... You know what I mean? Like, I I feel like those types, and they definitely are the central driving force of every single Jess Franco movie. It just, I love how they show up in such a wide range so strongly in Spanish films. And I, I think that definitely ties back into what you were saying about the ant going sort of power mad once she has some control is that she can never let it go. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, this really is off on a tangent. So first, Sam, uh, let me just go ahead and, and Sam, uh, anything else you want to say specifically about Bill from Hell? The only other thing I want to say that we didn't talk about that I love so much about this, and this is maybe something that I would one day like to do a book on or just maybe like a longer essay, are 
these sorts of horror movies that use audio recordings to scare the living shit out of people. Like it doesn't show up in a ton of movies, but it's one of my favorite sort of like little used tropes. Yeah. And here it is so perfect. Like how sometimes you think he's having a conversation with someone and then surprise, he's yeah. just talking recording. Yeah. Yeah. You're so, right. It's very effective. It really is. And and you're right. Audio, things like that, that are strictly voices sometimes and things like that can really be effective in, in films. I'm thinking of like Black Christmas. Uh, every time the killer calls in Black Christmas, he's just so thoroughly deranged sounding and weird. And it's just chills. It, to me, it's chilling every time I hear it. Oh, it's so scary. And to think that that was based, that's one of my favorite movies. I love Bob Clark. But to think that that was basically the first slasher movie and the sort of sheer level of profanity that he uses yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it makes and just also how creepy and scary his voice is you know 40 years later it, it mm. sort of makes every slasher movie villain to come after it's like well, if you're not going to call Margot Kidder a cunt, then like, <laughs> do we need to watch this movie? <laughs> I, swear, I swear that the movie is so good. and the, But I have to say, as great a horror film as it is, the scene that I always think of as soon as someone brings up Black Christmas is the cunnilingus sequence where she's just fucking with that cop. It's just hilarious. Oh, no, no. <laughs> Fellatio, it's F. Oh, it's Fellatio, yeah, right. Fellatio. God damn it, you're right. Fuck, fuck, you're fuck. Close. I'm, I'm, I'm overlay. I'm overlaying my preferred word. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> that is a very funny scene, though, because John Saxon, R.I.P. John Saxon, looks at him like you fucking moron. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, John, he will be missed. Yeah. Oh God, yes. I, I, when he uh, when he passed, uh, I sat down and I showed uh, I showed my girlfriend Beth, uh, the girl who uh, knew too much, the girl who knew too much, the Bava film for the first time. I didn't realize she'd never seen it. I said, you know, John John Saxon passed away, and she said, she's she she loves movies, but she couldn't picture his face. I said, well, I'll show you, uh, I'll show you this. He's very very young in this, and so as soon as she sees John Saxon in the movie, she went, oh, of course, John Saxon. And she said, he's yeah. really he's really young here, and I said, yep. And she said, and he's damned handsome. <laughs> <laughs> he was damned handsome, and it's funny. I watched that one too because. Uh, I have the same birthday as Mario Bava, so oh, every wow. year on our birthday, I watch Bava movies. Cool. And this year, I had to start with The Girl Who Knew Too Much just because of, of John Saxon and his handsomeness. <laughs> <laughs> and it being that good a movie, too. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I want to ask you, too, uh, you know, the, the guy that wrote, uh, the scriptwriter for Bell from Hell also wrote The Corruption of Chris Miller. Is that one you're a fan of? Have you seen that? Oh, yes. I love Corruption of Chris Miller. Uh Speaking of movies that Vinegar Syndrome put on Blu-ray that I still can't believe how good it looks. Oh, I know. know. That's definitely another one where it has this... Maybe he just had something with crazy ants. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What's it Mankata? Oh, the the author? The the script writer? Yeah, Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. Trying to remember. Uh, Yes, Santiago. uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mankata. They're both amazing. I, I think... They're also examples of movies that really are underrated. Like earlier yeah. I posted a little clip of this on Instagram and uh, like as a story 
And I had so many people write in like, what is this? I need to see it. And when I told them the title, they were like, I don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. It's like, how, why, why is this the universe we live in? <laughs> well, it, it was incredibly difficult to see movie for years. I saw it on a bootleg years and years ago. And yeah. uh, several, several years ago, I was like, we, we really need to talk about this movie because it's a brilliant Spanish horror movie. And we, we, we mentioned it several times on the podcast, well, I'd say for a couple of years, with me trying to find a decent print of it because I don't think you had not seen it. I had it. never seen it. And, and yeah, yeah. And in fact, it's, we talked about it at the end when we did our Bell from Hell show. It's funny, I was because I was listening back to that yeah. in preparation for doing this show. Our Bell from Hell show, towards the end, we're talking about corruption of Chris Miller. You're talking about how great it is. I'm talking about how I've never seen it. And you're saying, why doesn't, you know, this needs to be out on Blu-ray. And of course, <laughs> flash forward, you know, it wasn't that long, too much longer that it, you know, it did come out. And uh, and so I finally got to see it. And, and yeah, it blew me away. It's fantastic. It's just such a, it's, it's such an incredible film. And it's one of those that was so hard to see for so long. And now, I hate to say this, but it's like, now that it is easily available, I, I kind of want to just grab people and shake them. It's like, why haven't you seen this fucking movie yet? You know, where... I know. I mean... I think also, I feel the same. So he also, I think, wrote Baba's Hatchet for the Honeymoon. Yeah, he did. Yeah, right? yeah. And that's another one where people are like, oh, I love Blood and Black Lace. Oh, I love mm. Bay of Blood. I'm like, well, you just watch Hatchet for the Honeymoon. It also makes such a good double feature with A Bell from Hell because the two protagonists are very similar. Hmm. They're yeah. just sort of one is really a good person at heart who is incapable of being able to do the sort of violence that he wants to. And the other one is just batshit. <laughs> and, and more than capable of doing the violence that he wants to. Yeah, it's, it's sort of, if, yeah. if you would, I, I once watched them as a double feature and watched a bell from hell first. And it almost feels like hatchet for the honeymoon is like, what happened if he survived and got married and just like succumbed to the madness? <laughs> That'd be interesting to do. Maybe, I need, I, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll rewatch Hatchet for the Honeymoon here very soon while I've still got Bell from Hell fresh in my mind. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you should. They're so good together. Well, um, Sam, I'm. Uh, this is where I'm going to kind of go, you know, way off track here. But it's something I really wanted to say because I just wanted to uh, before the show is over, I wanted to thank publicly thank you and and Cat for uh, the episode of your show that you, uh, Daughters of Darkness, the episode that you did on uh, Eyes of Fire. Uh, oh. Because that film has been a treasured film among our small group of, of friends for years and years and years. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, I loved it. I loved it, the, what you guys, that you got, the fact you guys actually even, you know, brought it to light. Uh, I saw it, we saw, you know, not too long after it came out, but I can't take any credit for that because like many, many other people, uh, yeah, I just passed over it every time I saw it on the video shelves in Blockbuster because the cover art was terrible. I mean, the whole uh, of the video box, and you can tell, you know, obviously the people who put it out, I'm sure, had absolutely no idea what to do with it. So, you know, again, it had terrible cover art. It looked basically like kind of like a Disney live-action, maybe fantasy film, which at that time in the early 80s wouldn't have been that enticing, you know. So I would kind of, you know, I'd see it like, yeah, now nah, I'm going to move on to this cannibal, you know, horror film here, you know, move on down the line. Uh, but a friend of ours, uh, Dave Conover, that actually lives in Louisville, Kentucky, he, for some somehow or another, ended up renting it. I don't know if it was just out of sheer desperation of maybe he'd seen everything else in the video store. Uh, but he rented it and immediately got in touch with us and said, you, you guys have got to see this film. So we did. And ever since then, you know, we've shared it with whoever we could, you know, and kind of sang the gospel and praises of it. But, uh, um, 
honestly, until you know, until hearing you, your show on it, that that was the first time that I've ever seen the film referenced or heard the film referenced at all. You know, and it's it's it maybe the most overlooked film of all time. <laughs> and, uh, uh, ignored film and it's so good uh, actually my younger brother is a huge fan of it too and he saw The Witch before I did and so he came to me and said Troy this this film The Witch reminds me so much of Eyes of Fire uh, except yeah. it's not as good yeah I love I, I, yeah I mean I actually I liked The Witch more than you and Kat did but I, I, I still think that because uh, I did really enjoy it actually but um, Eyes of Fire is a film that yeah I, 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 I really want I could totally see Vinegar Syndrome putting something like that out, and it needs to because this film just really needs to be seen. Um, but you can you can totally see why it flopped because if there was ever oh, yeah. a time not to make a folk horror film in a period <laughs> setting, it was the early eighties. And uh, in fact, I don't think we even get another one until later on down the line. You start getting things like you know Ravenous and Wendigo, and then there was the Ginger Snap sequel that was had a period setting so you yes, start to and, get those and, and you know the, the thing that all those films have in common they is they clocked. made yeah. Both, yeah they made zero dollars yeah <laughs> exactly uh, it's very strange it like it's so weird to me that that sort of period piece gothic horror would flourish in british cinema and also do pretty well in euro horror not that like any euro horror movie has ever really been all that financially successful but mm-hmm. it's like americans just hate period horror i don't i don't understand it and i think that kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of the episode of this idea of directors doing something so radically different that maybe it just isn't the right time or it doesn't hit enough of those kind of mainstream beats for it to be accessible to people but eyes of fire it's like it was one of those movies that i kind like i had heard about Mm-hmm. but didn't really have much interest in because I think the plot description that I read made it sound like it was like the crucible, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like a low budget <laughs> of the crucible. And I think it was cat who was like, okay, no, someone sent me a file. You need to watch this and we need to cover it. And I was like, what is happening? <laughs> how does, how does no one know about this? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I, as always, I feel like, <clears throat> you know, when enough voices start mentioning it, you know, just throwing it out there into the ether, you know, it's all we can do. And, and, and hoping that it, the, the more voices say the title, you know, the more it will kind of conjure it into being, you know, at some point, some somebody like a vinegar syndrome or a scream factory or somebody will, will actually put out a version of it. Well, I do think that it will eventually come out. I, I do wonder what's keeping it, though. I think when you, when you can point to a film that has a, a, a pretty large underground cult following, and the most recent release of it was on a fucking laser disc. Yeah. Something's something's going weird here. Something's happened. So it could be uh, an inability to find decent source materials. It could be a, a rights problem. It could be uh, God knows what. But you know something weird's going on with that movie. And huh, maybe uh, maybe it will come out. We can cross our fingers for it, I guess. But well, um, Sam, I, I'll say uh, you know. If uh, Bell from Hell comes out on Blu-ray, you know, obviously in the ideal ideal perfect world, it'd have two commentaries, one from you and Kat and one from Rod and I. But <laughs> I really hope that you and Kat get the audio commentary for it because if nothing else, I just want to hear you during the slaughterhouse sequence just say, hey, everybody out there, toughen what up. Bitches? Get over it. <laughs> get, get over it, you greasy, big, fat, Burger-eating bastards, you know. I just want to hear you say that. So. <laughs> Burger-eating bastards. <laughs> that one's gonna live. That one's gonna live forever. 
if you guys if you guys do the commentary, just like have me on for that scene. <laughs> <laughs> and now here's Sam with the perspective. Here, here's oh, yeah. Sam Deegan to explain to you why you're a pussy. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be such a little bitch. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Oh, listen before before we before we let you go, I did want to say I also wanted to thank you for your work as an editor on uh, on Lost Girls, the the genre land book. That's uh, uh, anything that gets more out there about genre lands films, yeah. the better the better the world is. Absolutely. Yeah, that was one of those things where I am still surprised <laughs> that it all came together. And I just, I don't know, I, I i feel like a lot of the directors, and it seems like you guys are the same way, but a lot of the directors I really love or the movies I really love are sort of more underdogs. It's like people either put them down because they don't have the right production elements or because the plots are too weird or people just don't know about them because they've never gotten proper releases. And I just, I wish that I didn't have to have a day job and I could write one of those books every six months, but yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, we both, we both understand that particular problem. Yeah. <laughs> the struggle. <laughs> the, the, yes. The struggle. <laughs> God damn it. Why won't somebody pay me to be cool? <laughs> just pay me to watch movie, which I shouldn't complain because like, you know, we all get commentary work. <laughs> I think a lot of, a lot of other podcasters and bloggers don't ever get paid at all. So I always feel bad when I complain, like, I'm about to be struck by lightning. <laughs> <laughs> See, when you asked me how old I was the first time I saw a Paul Nashie movie, I was wondering if you were sort of asking if his chest hair affected me going through puberty. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. That's, that's a good guess, though. But no, no. The, the main reason for asking that question is always uh, the younger you are when you're exposed to some of these things. The, the the more long-lasting your affection for it probably will be. Not in every case, but with uh, with horror movies, it, you get a, weird, a lot of weird answers. And I always want to know, I always like to know the, 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 the age of someone because some people come to a love of horror movies kind of a little bit, what I would refer to as later in life, because when they were kids, they were, they were either kept away from them by their parents or they were too frightened of them. They were, they, you know, they caught like, you know, a scene, or they saw one, and it, and it creeped them out, or it made them feel weird, and they didn't know what to do, so they just kind of retreated into what, you know, some other form of entertainment. So the first time you see something at, the, at that age, and your reaction to it at that age, is really part and parcel of how your reaction to that kind of genre stuff is going to be for the rest of your life. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I just connected with it so young, in part because, you know, my parents were divorced when I was really young. And so I grew up with pretty much no rules and just did whatever I wanted. <laughs> but it meant that I got to watch a lot of horror movies. And weirdly, my dad's and my dad is also a big horror fan. So he introduced me to a lot of stuff like Clive Barker and John Carpenter. And his only rule was the Exorcist is too extreme, so you can't watch it until you're, I think he said 15. So my sort of response was, when I was eight, I read the book, which is way more terrifying than the movie. <laughs> yeah. And is nothing any eight-year-old should ever read. Ooh, man, no. Oh, my God. Yeah. By the time I watched The Fucking Exorcist, I had already seen... 
probably five or six full. Che- I already, I think I had already seen New York Ripper by the time oh, I wow. watched The Exorcist. So <laughs> Holy I was like, Jesus! I was like, "What is this? Isn't scary? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing happens." <laughs> Oh my lord! Well, if you're not, one of the the, the funny things to me is uh, the first time I saw The Exorcist, I was a teenager, and uh, you know you you seek it out because it's this it's legendary horror film, and it was incredibly yeah. effective to me. But I do love watching uh, do love watching The Exorcist nowadays when I am completely non-religious and seeing it for the spooky fairy tale that it really plays as when you when you don't believe in the the the, the Catholic undertones and underpinnings of the everything in the story. Definitely always very strange to me to watch films that like where I take certain elements to be purely symbolic or allegory like The Exorcist. And it just it fascinates me that there are people who take them literally. And I just like there there's definitely a part of me that would really love to hear a commentary track or maybe even a podcast would be more appropriate where someone who does like horror movies, but is genuinely religious talks about the movies from a religious lens because it's just so foreign to me. It's like, even though I grew up with it by the time I was seven or eight, I stopped going to, I said like, I think this is nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) I, yeah, I did. I did not come to that uh, until much later, but yeah, I, I know, I know where you're coming from. So, well, you were probably less of a pain in the ass than I was as a kid. <laughs> I was probably a pain in the ass in a very different way. <laughs> that's, that's probably true. <laughs> Sam, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. Yes, it's been great. I, yeah, thank you, guys. It's been so much fun. I feel we could keep talking for, I, I swear to you, I thought we were only going to keep you for an hour, and uh, boy, boy, was I wrong. Well, I didn't even realize what time it was. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you guys so much. And thank you for humoring me and letting me talk about A Bell from Hell, even though you've already talked about it. Oh, it's uh, quite all right, quite all right. A movie of this quality is well worth talking about multiple times. Yeah, we hope we'll have you back at some point talk about something else. I Yeah, yeah I, ha- I, have some, I have some subjects uh, that I think it would be great to have you on the sister podcast to talk about. Yeah, The Bloody Pit there. Yeah, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe uh, a long-form discussion of the joys of the keep. Oh, yes. I, I mean, I've written about it, but I've never really gotten to talk about it at length. Wouldn't that be fun? That would be so much fun. I think I've got her hooked. This yeah. is good. All, All right. right, cool. Sam, thanks again. Thank you guys so much. All right. Have a good night. Good night. Here's what some people are saying about the Projection Booth podcast. The Projection Booth is single-handedly the greatest film podcast you could ever listen to or could possibly want. Top-notch. Five stars. This has quickly become one of my favorite film-related podcasts. Always interesting. A completely unpretentious yet fully comprehensive look at films from all genres. This podcast is an amazing resource and one that helps in the discovery or rediscovery of films for anyone who enjoys thinking about cinema. If you love movies and podcasts, subscribe and enjoy The Projection Boot. Every episode is beautifully crafted to give you a true audio experience, a wonderful companion to the films they cover. The Projection Booth is awesome. A wide range of films covered from classic to cult to contemporary, thoroughly researched, very entertaining, and always informative. The Projection Booth Podcast, with new episodes available every week at projectionboothpodcast.com.
All right, everybody, I wanted to jump back in here real quick and uh, thank Troy once again for finally being able to sit down and be a part of one of these interviews. <laughs> yeah, no, it was great. Great to, great to join in. And uh, once again, thanks, Sam, for being yeah. able to come on to the show. And, uh, yeah, well, th- thank we you, talked Sam. for a while. Yeah, I was going to say, we, we promised you we would keep it to an hour, and we stuck to that. <laughs> <laughs> and that is a damn lie. Oh, my goodness. Now, we'd love to be able to tell you what we're going to cover next here on the NashiCast, but to be honest... We, we don't, don't have, know. have no idea. We're so going to figure it out. Suggestions. Yeah, that's right. So. Yeah, I, I, we've got a couple of Beyond Nashies that we're uh, we're holding back on, and maybe we'll get mm-hmm. one of those. I'm hoping to actually be able to get one of those and get it out sometime in October. Something, uh, strangely, I think we're going to go for a horror theme in October. Yeah, I, don't I know, know. It's kind of kind of thinking outside the box there, but you roll with it. It's yeah. a little strange. It's a yeah. little strange. Normally, we like to do a uh, Yuletide-themed mm-hmm. show for the October <laughs> month. Just you know, to make every, make sure everybody is aware of the the correct time of year for that. But no, no, of course in October we're we're probably going to have to find another. Uh, man, are there there are these Spanish horror movies out there that you know maybe mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe we'll drag yeah, ourselves into the 21st century for the first time. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I have an idea about that that I'll talk to you okay. about offline. Offline, okay. Well, folks, once again, thank you very much for uh, tuning in. If you've got any thoughts or suggestions, please. Write us at nashicast at gmail.com. And don't forget, you can visit us over on the Facebook page. And also don't forget to visit Sam Deegan over on diabolic.com. It's a it's a yeah. hell of a site with some brilliant essays over there. Yeah. Not just reviews, but uh, essays that really dig into the meat of these films. Lots of different types of films, mm-hmm. by the way. And, uh, Even though well she's a vegetarian, time. remember, she's a vegetarian. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. It, di- it digs into the broccoli <laughs> of the, these films. It really and, digs around and roots hard. Yeah. And, and listen to uh, listen to her uh, podcast, Daughters of Darkness, that she does with Cat Ellinger. Most assuredly. I wonder if they've got a, any kind of ad for that. I need to root around. People, if, you, if you've just heard an ad for the Daughters of Darkness mm-hmm. podcast, then I was able to find one. Yeah. <laughs> if not, I'm still hunting. But... Uh, Troy, once again, thank you very much. You too. And uh, I guess uh, I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we will talk to you again soon. <laughs>